0: Good morning travelers, pre-med students and undergraduates, welcome to Doctor's Inn. This podcast features top performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Laura Vatter, who is a writer, lecturer, and hematological oncologist. As a physician writer, she writes narrative medicine articles and is currently working on her first novel which is very exciting. Uh, In 2017, she created a program to assist patients and professionals in organizing and prioritizing their health information. And this is known as the SMILE skill, which we'll go much deeper into later in the podcast. Um, And this skill is actually used in schools and clinics across the U.S. and the U.K., She got her master's degree in public health from the University of Pittsburgh and completed her doctorate in medicine and internal medicine residency along with her fellowship, which is what she's currently doing right now, from Indiana University School of Medicine. She is a member of the school's honor roll and was inducted into the Gold Humanism Honor Society in 2018. In 2020, she received the Walter J. Daly Award for Outstanding Resident, hiking, reading, writing, and spending time with her family and her lovely dog are some of Dr. Vatter's uh, favorite pastimes. So her research currently focuses on breast and lung cancer, as well as disparities in cancer prevention. If you want to keep up to date with her written articles and posts where she highlights useful tactics to navigate through the rough terrain that is medicine, you can follow Dr. Vatter on Instagram at doclauravatter, that's D O C V A T E R, or her website at www.lauravatter.com. With that said, let's welcome Dr. Vatter to the inn.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me people are bored now they're like oh my goodness but I am so thrilled to be here and I am so excited to have a conversation that I hope is useful to your audience of pre-meds and medical students so thank you for having me.
0: I have a very good feeling about this I think it will be and also I just want to say I'm very impressed with you uh with how you fit us into your schedule on this weekday right after the clinic.
1: You know, I just got out. I I have a a Wednesday clinic at the Veterans Hospital. And oh, my gosh, those veterans, they are a hoot. But the clinic last day is like the last appointments at noon. Right. And of course, it never actually goes on time because of all the other things. So thank you for your flexibility. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Of course. It's my pleasure. So. We have a lot of different avenues to navigate through. But first, I do want to ask about GABA, specifically your discovery of meditation in relation to GABA. Uh, Can you expand a little bit on that and how it kind of became the origin of your meditation journey?
1: Absolutely. So for those of you who are listening, you're hearing GABA, right? So GABA is a chemical in your brain that... Most of you know this, but it's the calming chemical. It's an inhibitory neurochemical. We have other neurochemicals that work in other ways, but it's the one that calms us down. And I found in my, you know, for those of you who are medical students here at pre-meds, right, just know that you're coming into a field that is stressful, that is hard. You're studying a lot. and you take care of patients, you're going to be seeing patients that are really sick patients who may have worsening of their disease. And you're going to actually see patients die, of course, as part of your career. This is a hard field to enter. I would not enter another field. This is the most meaningful field to enter. So keep going, <laughs> but know that it can be stressful. Yeah. When I was a first year medical student, I had anxiety that wasn't there before. I stopped taking care of my health. And I know you're we talking about this earlier. I stopped getting enough sleep. I stopped exercising. I stopped eating well. And my anxiety, this anxiety that really wasn't there before, kind of came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I would be having these small panic attacks in class. I'd have to sit at the end of the row of my classmates because if I had to get up and leave the room, I actually found out later that I had another classmate in the row in front of me who was experiencing the exact same thing. And about half of medical students experience anxiety. What you're going through is stressful. This doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you lack resilience. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. This is often a product of being in a really stressful environment and thinking you don't have time to take care of yourself, right? So GABA, I came to I came to meditation be, like just like you said, because of GABA. When we look at how meditation affects the brain. It actually increases that calming chemical in your brain called GABA. It's the same thing that is increased with, you know, alcohol in the short term or certain medications in the short term, but the effects of those are short term and then they wear off, right? And they can have other detrimental side effects, but meditation has been shown through research to increase GABA and, for it to stay at a higher level. And so I actually came to meditation from, like you said, like a cerebral, very kind of Mm data-driven process. I was like, you know, I really have to give this a chance because the science here is really interesting. And so I started meditating and I can tell you, I was a huge skeptic before I started this, right? But I I can tell you that it cut my anxiety in half. And I had, I had my daughter, she's five now, if you can believe that, but I had her when I was a fourth year medical student. And when I was going through that whole postpartum period, I found that my anxiety of just being a parent increased as well. Mm-hmm. And I came, you know, there are periods of time where I meditated and got away from it. And then it was really when I was after having my daughter that I really got into a daily practice of meditation that I've thankfully been able to continue I try to do it every day, almost every single day, right? And it has has such huge benefits for me. And if you're experiencing anxiety, try it, even for a couple of weeks. It might take a couple of weeks for you to really experience that. But the science there is really interesting and it might be helpful for you.
0: Yeah, so it seems like your route to meditation was more of a scientific approach, as you uh, mentioned, and trying to mitigate your own anxiety. So speaking of anxiety, did it play a big role in preventing you from, I guess, adequately treating patients or studying during your early days in med school?
1: No, that's a great question. I was still studying all the time. Um, I was still performing well in school. I don't think that it necessarily affected my performance. By the time I was actually seeing patients, I had a much better handle of this. That was in my later in my second year and my third year. But I can tell you that when it got really bad, I would not go to class. I would do mm-hmm. the online lectures. I would feel this pressure of, so. and also my anatomy professor was also, he also did autopsies. In the community. He's a pathologist. And so not only would his lectures be about pathology, he would also have all of these slides about all of these autopsies that he'd done. And all of this, right? I mean, interesting from a scientific perspective, when you're already experiencing high anxiety and seeing really, really traumatic images flashed across the screen through your whole lectures, it just got to a point where I just, you know, I was studying for step at that time as well. And it just got to a point where I couldn't go to lecture. I went less because of that. So I do think that it affected that and creating it's, This is part of the reason that I created what's called the smile scale. Now it's, it's called something to you know, my own mind, my own, my own system was different way back then, but it was the same components of what are the things that help us be mentally well and physically well what are the things that are going to protect my mental and physical health so that I can not just survive this environment, but thrive in it. And that's been a really important thing for me personally.
0: Um, If you can please just go through the smile scale for our audience, that'll be very appreciative.
1: Yeah, this is a free tool that is meant to be very simple. I have a background in public health and health communication. So I wanted something that was not you know, a 20 point scale to assess your health and the setting of blah, 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 right? So it's five questions you ask yourself every day. You can, I invite you to do it right now with me. Okay, so each letter of the word smile stands for one healthy habit that will help protect your health today, but for the decades to come. So S stands for sleep. Am I sleeping enough? Am I getting seven to nine hours of rest at night? If you're getting six hours of sleep, the data tells us that's not enough. That's going to affect your health. You know, not getting enough sleep increases your risk for anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. It's an independent risk factor for having suicidal thoughts, just alone, not getting enough sleep. It doubles your risk of cancer, increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease, for coronary disease, for diabetes, for weight gain. I mean, you name it. There's not an organ that's not affected by lack of sleep. So first question to ask, and the most important in my mind, are you getting enough sleep? Yes or no. So right. if you're getting enough sleep, that answer, you give yourself one point. Okay. So this is five point scale. Give yourself one point if you're getting enough sleep. If you're not, you're not alone. I've been there. Keep keep really prioritizing that because that's going to make you a better learner and it's going to make you feel better. The second one is move. Move my body. Have I been physically active today? Your pre-meds here, your medical students here. My goodness. We're not marathoners. We don't have time to go run for five hours, even <laughs> right. two yeah. hours, right? So the goal here is really, have I been physically active today, ideally for 30 minutes or more, right? So this can be, for me, this looks like waking up and doing 15 minutes of yoga and meditation. And in the evening, right, I've got a five-year-old daughter. So we do a dance party in the house. We sometimes go to school. We do we do something, right? Something that's we play soccer, we'll play bass. So are you just being physically active and all activity counts? So if you're being physically active, ideally for 30 minutes, give yourself one point. As we know, that's going to protect your muscular health, your bone health, your cardiovascular health. Also, it's going to reduce your risk for cancer, right? I'm a cancer doctor. So I always mm-hmm. have to plug that you're exercise right. really helpful to reduce cancer. And it helps us to feel good and boost your mood. And there's a growth hormone that's produced when you are exercising that actually helps you to be a better learner. And so just know that I always say that for those, those that are learning, just say, oh, I don't have time to exercise. I have to study. If you're sleeping and exercising, you're going to perform better on your tests. Okay, so we talked about sleep, we talked about movement. The next one gets to how do you reduce stress? So this one is called inhale and exhale. Are you finding healthy ways to reduce your stress? Ideally, if you can develop a meditation practice, this can be really helpful in your life. Um, But think about other things that can help you relax. Maybe that's deep breathing. Maybe that's journaling. Maybe that is going for a walk outside. You know, there's maybe that's through some type of prayer, Um, whatever it is that can help you relax. Make sure you're building in at least 10 minutes of that a day because you deserve that, right? We have a lot of chronic stress. We know that the effects of chronic stress are really bad for our health. So if you're building in at least 10 minutes of healthy ways to reduce your stress then give yourself a point. The next letter is L. This stands for love and connect. We don't talk about this in medical school at all. We don't. The Harvard study of adult, I don't know if if any of you have come across this, but the Harvard study of adult development, it's been a study that's been going on for 80 or 90 years. And the main finding of this study, right? So they're tracking people over time. What are the factors that affect their health? The surprising finding from this study is that it's actually our social connections that are extremely protective for our health. And it's not like you have to have 100 friends, it's really your core two or three people, whether that's a friend, a family member, a partner, who are those people in your life? And do you have nurturing, supportive relationships? Do you have people to rely on if you're in financial crisis or emotional crisis or some type of crisis? Those are the relationships that mean the most, that are the most protective for your health. So the question for love and connect is, am I fostering my relationships in at least one way a day, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that means that you are sending right now, maybe you're going to, after this call, after this conversation, you're going to send a text message to a friend that says, you know, thanks for supporting me. I really appreciate you. You know, I've been busy lately, but I want, you know, I'm thinking about you, or maybe it's calling your family member. Maybe it's doing something intentional for that partner in your life, just to let them know that you care about them uh, because social connections are really important. And then the last part of the smile scale is E, which is eat to nourish, right? We have tons of data in this realm, but if you look at medical school curriculum. We don't talk about nutrition. We don't talk about diet, but there's very, very strong evidence that eating whole foods that are grown in the ground. So mostly plants are very protective for your health. Things like antioxidants and phytonutrients that you know, if you look at cancer, right, slow the growth of cancer, decrease angiogenesis or the blood flow to cancer um, can decrease free radical damage. There's all sorts of wonderful things that happen when you're eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and legumes and nuts, things that are real foods. Um, That doesn't mean, right, it's hard, it's hard, right, when you're in a you're pre-med, you're a medical student, you're just trying to feed yourself and keep going, right? But as much as possible, right? Trying to get at least five servings a day. So if you're getting five a day, give yourself a point. I do want to say though, that um, organizations like the American Heart Association, they're recommending up to 13 servings a day. So just know okay, wow. the more, the better. And even if you say, I'm not eating a healthy diet bubble, blah, blah, I'm eating these convenience foods, adding those things to your diet is still going to be extremely helpful. Even if you're eating other foods, you might classify as unhealthy. Of course, yes. Eliminating those would be more helpful, but adding those to your diet. So you go to the grocery, you have groceries delivered and you have packets of berries. You throw them in your lunch bag. You have a whole avocado. You throw it in your lunch bag, a whole bell pepper. You throw it in your lunch bag. And then when you're at work, you're at the hospital, you have Mm -hmm. all of these things right at your disposal. You don't have to spend all this time chopping and preparing and whatnot. Just like you know, that's been my strategy through residency and medical school that's helped me to actually eat produce and nuts and things like that. Right. And drinking loose tea and all these things. And you, you can do that and not have to spend hours a day preparing food. So that's the smile scale. <laughs> Tons of things right there. Kind of five things. Sleep, move, inhale, exhale, love, and connect. And then eat to nourish. So it's a scale from zero to five each day. If you've done each of those things and you give yourself a point, it's not meant to make you feel inadequate to say, oh my gosh, I'm doing any of those things. I'm an awful person. It's just meant to say, let me gently nudge myself in the right direction.
0: Right. I mean, there's so many pointers that we can go through for this. And what's really interesting is that if you tend to, I guess, you know, go into a healthy lifestyle, and you try to maximize one of these factors, such as going to the gym, or, you know, doing a workout or whatever, you start to do other things that are also very healthy for your body. So it's a very good uh, positive feedback loop. um, In that case. Absolutely. Yeah. So One of the questions that I have a a follow up with this is that which one of the letters from the SMILES um, scale do you find yourself to often have the lowest uh, score of zero more often than the others?
1: So I find when I'm on call, right? So I still have call. I was an internal medicine resident for three years. And there was definitely call and sleep, sleep loss during that. And then in my fellowship as well, I've got plenty of call. So if I'm on call, I would say sleep is the first thing that's really hard to get. But most days, now that I'm a fellow, life is a lot easier and a lot better. There's less call. So I would say the first thing, and I think for most of us, the hardest thing, at least for me, is that exercise part, especially in the winter, Mm -hmm. especially I'm much more active in the warm months because not only do I, every day I'm doing, you know, 15 minutes of yoga, but it's, I would like to do more cardiovascular, you know, more intense cardiovascular activities. And in the summertime, spring, summer, and fall, I run try to run. right? right. I uh, like to be outside. I like to swim, but I think exercise is the hardest thing because it, I think it takes, for me, it takes the most energy and planning. And I think for many of us, that can be the first thing to go. But often one of the things I think sleep, if we're looking at all of these things, sleep is the absolute most crucial, right? Getting enough sleep is the most crucial one to really get first, because if you can get enough sleep, you're going to have energy to do the rest of them. Right. And usually I, I if I'm not on call, I get enough sleep, I have a my husband and my daughter, right? So I'm always my daughter's always just, you know, she's very loving. So I always get hit that, you know, social connection box. Right. It'll be hard. I think when you're in your pre-med and medical school years, I've developed pretty good habits around eating, but I think exercise is probably the hard one.
0: Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I mean, my follow up question was going to be what would be the most crucial out of it all? And you kind of mentioned that it's sleep. I guess I do want to kind of hit upon anxiety that you talked about a little bit earlier. And uh, in one of your interviews, you did talk about anxiety and you talked about how it is sometimes often caused by competition, secondary trauma, sleep deprivation, and other mental and physical health related uh, deprivation. So I specifically want to kind of dive deeper into secondary trauma because I don't think it's talked about enough from physicians. And it's because I think like you have this binary, right, where physicians are told to feel compassionate and be in the present for their patients. And then the other complete opposite uh, is being clinically present, but then emotionally absent. And I guess while being emotionally present provides the proper care, there is this, I guess, fear, right, that if you have that presence, it leads to a lot of secondary trauma, because let's say a patient dies in front of you, and then you have no way to process it. So it just lingers internally with you for a day, a week and so on. So I guess, have you ever had any experiences with that? And if so, kind of how did you deal with it? This
1: is a really important topic. And I'm so glad that you're talking about this because I do not think we talk about this in medical training where we learn the physiology and the pathophysiology and the pharmacology, and then you become a resident. And I think most of this happens intern year, at least for me, when you're a third and fourth year medical student, it happens too, but you're often right with an attending you're right with the team. Mm-hmm. You have more time to process and cope. For me, this was hardest when I was an intern. I started my intern year in the ICU where I did not have a resident above me. I did not have a fellow and it was just me and the attending and my attending was great and um, knew what was going on, but I never was around my attending except for for rounds. And so there right. was a lot happening around me that I was just trying to process on my own within the first week of my residency. I was on the highest coding floor in the state of Indiana, oh my God. and so I was in the Jeez. cardiovascular ICU. I saw four people die. I mean, we had we had at least two codes, sometimes up to five or six codes a day on that floor and across the hospital. And I didn't really know. I didn't, first of all, I didn't know how to pronounce a patient when I started my intern year, which is a really important skill that you can do with compassion and kindness, or you can do it without those things, right? And it really affects the family. And the second thing is, is I really didn't have an outlet or an avenue to know how to process these deaths that I was experiencing. And young people who are otherwise healthy, and then they came in and then they had this terrible thing and, right. And so I would drive home. I worked from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. six days a week. And I drive home at 7 p.m. in silence. No radio, no podcast, no no books, because I did not know how to process this. Sometimes it was just like what happened today. There were a thousand things that happened. I'm just trying to learn how to practice medicine, right? So sometimes it was that. But a lot of this was, did I say the right thing or... That person was just alive and then they weren't. And it was a lot of these emotions that I didn't expect to happen because I had learned all those other things. And now I was a doctor and I had an MD and I would graduated and now I was practicing medicine, but all of this kind of hit me and I didn't, I don't know that I was ready for it. So I like to prepare medical students just graduating, saying intern year, especially the first couple months, especially in your critical care rotations are really hard and people around you see so much death and it's not that they're bad people, It's just that they have seen it a lot, right? Yeah. And there's not always the debriefing or just the acknowledgement like, oh, that was a hard conversation or that was a really difficult experience. Like that. there's that, like you said, that disconnect to be able to emotionally detach to perform, right? And that's what we have to pretend to do. For me, that's when I started really diving into journaling and writing. It was my outlet. It was my avenue to how to process these things. Because when you experience illness, decompensation of patients, death, grieving family members, family members who are upset and angry and disbelief, all of these things affect you. There's no way not to be affected by these things that you see. I will tell you that over time, you're going to see so many of these things that your body is going to find find ways, not in a bad way to not to detach or to separate yourself, but you're just going to have some type of familiarity with those things. And hopefully you'll create healthy ways to process those. I strongly believe that in order, like you said, to be present, to be an empathetic, caring, compassionate human being with your patients. That is the most meaningful work. That's where the meaning of medicine comes, is through that connection and that knowing and that caring. And if we take that away, I think that medicine, the practice of medicine really loses its meaning, right? Then it's just mm. going through the motions of doing this practicing of medicine without caring for human being. Then I think, what's the point, right? We're in it because we want to care about humans. And I know that through that, especially when you're a cancer doctor and you have these long-term relationships developed with patients. You see them do well. Today in my clinic, we got to celebrate scans that were doing well and patients doing well. I also had a patient that wasn't doing well, but cancer had come back and spread and has a new cancer. And so it's you've developed that relationship and you can be present with them and care about them. And that's such a meaningful thing to do. And then you're, you are stoic in the moment. It's okay to shed a tear to show that you care. But if you feel more emotions than that, you need a place and a space to process through journaling, through therapy, through talking about it with your team, through debriefing, finding safe spaces to process those things is incredibly important rather than disconnecting as a defense
0: mechanism yeah and i'm so glad that you mentioned journey we're gonna get into that but i just want to like isn't it interesting that doctors are working to take care of people but then a lot of the training that you have to go through to become an attending takes some of that empathy out of you that you kind of initially went into i think there was this like a uh, recent study done that highlighted that medical students who go into medical school in their first year um, compared to when they graduate, their empathy sc- like scores are lower, which is bizarre.
1: That's absolutely true. And so for those of you just starting medical school, you know, like yourself and me, is that you, you're coming in highly altruistic, motivated, caring, and that as you go through training, it is possible that that level of empathy can decline. And I think that's for a number of reasons. I think part of it is because you're going to see so much illness and suffering and death. And holding on to your empathy is kind of like, trying to hold on to sand, right? Mm. Especially as you get stressed, especially as you fatigue, especially as you're on call, especially as you're maybe in medical school, people are bullied or sexually harassed or mistreated, or they have so much work and more is piled on them. It's hard to be a caring human being if you feel like you're not cared for as a human being. And so I think those two things go hand in hand as well as the stress, the long work hours, the fatigue of training. I think all of those are at play in terms of why empathy declines.
0: I see, so I think this is a good time to talk about journaling, so before we get into journaling, I, I do want to say that you know we have charting, of course, uh, doctors, you probably fill out a bunch of charts today, and it's purely factual, and tracking we're tracking events that happen on an objective level, but as we kind of talked about, uh, all the emotional stuff, it can't be written in the charts, um, all the subjective, I guess, analysis, all the subjective interactions. So was journaling your way of kind of channeling all that subjectivity and all that emotions into this um, paper or this like substantializing it?
1: I think journaling for me, and if you're not familiar with the term parallel charting, I think you brought that up very well. There's a charting that we all are familiar with. There's a concept called parallel charting. that that was created by the team at at Columbia. Really, it's this concept that there are things that are going to be evoked when you're taking care of patients, especially with certain patients. Maybe they remind you of your mother Mm. or your best friend or your child, right? There are going to be emotions that are evoked when you're caring for a patient that you can't put in that chart, but they need to go somewhere. They need to be talked about with a therapist or with a team member or a friend. But parallel charting is this concept that through protecting person's identity. So never putting identifiers in that journal, right. But in general terms, talking about what has happening and how it's affecting you is a really powerful tool of just acknowledging that it happened Mm -hmm. and being able to process it. I mean, that seems silly, but when you are practicing medicine, you are going to be seeing so many patients one after the other, after the other, after the other, it seems silly of like, of, of that concept of acknowledging it happened, but being able to on a post call day, I used to think about the day before and say, what actually happened? It was one steady stream of activity. And so, journaling is a way to just slow down in a very rushed environment and say, what happened? How can I process this? How can I work through these hard things? And maybe it's just to document that it happened, right? Because it was, it, maybe it was an incredibly, there's so many beautiful, meaningful interactions with other human beings. There will be people that you meet in your career that they will tell you stories that they've never told another human being that they will trust you with. And there's that connection there. There's something incredibly beautiful about that connection. Maybe you're just documenting this experience you have with another human being caring for them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, But I think that journaling can be a way for you to hold on to why you went into medicine, help you process hard things, but also remember your why. I think that's so important. And then, you know, plug for any of you who are really interested in writing as a career, you can there are many, many places that are interested in these experiences and this writing of the narrative of medicine, of course, in a way that completely protects the patient's identity. That's the most important thing. But if you look at, you know, annals of internal medicine or journal of general internal medicine or academic medicine or BMJ or all of these journals, you know, journals of clinical oncology, they all have JAMA, New England Journal, they all have places. For doctors to publish things that they've experienced in their writing and that's something that in the last two years I've, I've published six essays in different narrative places and i think that i did not anticipate that i just started journaling as a tool for myself and it became this love of writing and capturing those moments in medicine
0: that has become something more for me. Yeah, and might I add the um, the kind of narrative stories that you have written? I mean, they're beautifully crafted. I've read some of them, and I do have to say they are uh, the word choices were like you feel like you're kind of there. I'm there with you, Doctor Vatter. You know, as you're going through this, and just like writing is so good for you, like in general, for the past year, me specifically, I kind of like made it my goal to get better at writing because I feel like if you can become a more coherent writer, you can become a more coherent speaker and it just gets better and better with like the thinking process too. So yeah.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for reading those essays. Yeah. I'm very, that's very kind of you to do that. And um, I'm hopeful that I will encourage anyone listening that there are many places and You know, every every time you get an essay accepted, there's probably going to be 10 rejections that come before that. Mm -hmm. I had a friend that submitted an essay once and never submitted again because she thought, oh, it's awful. Just know that there are certain audiences that will resonate more with your writing. Keep submitting, keep revising. And if this is something you're interested in, just be persistent. Because if your stories are out there, I feel like they should be shared.
0: Yeah. Persistence is key. Uh, before I do let you go, I have a, just very few questions. I think we can go through like a rapid fur type of thing. Um, do you have any preference over inpatient or outpatient oncology?
1: I love outpatient medicine. Most of my, most of my residency was inpatient, which I love too. When yeah. you get good at inpatient, I mean, you get good at it. But the outpatient setting is what allows to see a patient once every month, once every two weeks, see them over time, get to see how they're doing, meet their family, get to know them. And to me, that's the most meaningful part of my career. Quick plug, anyone interested in oncology, it's the best field. (laughs) It's really the best field, most meaningful, good work-life balance, good compensation. But most of all, just really, really strong relationships with your people. And you just get to see them and you get to have this connection. And it's just anyway, so outpatient for that reason for those connections.
0: It's interesting, because yesterday I talked to a uh, urologist, she was incredible. She was also saying, urologist is the best go for this. And it's just like, it's so good to see doctors who are really passionate about their own specialty. It's, it's incredible. Um, one other question is: What has been the most kind of difficult part of oncology fellowship so far for you?
1: I think I knew this coming into it, but it's really hard when you know someone and then they pass away. Hmm. And I think that I have come to the realization that this is true in every field. That's true in urology. That's true in every single field. So it's most important to protect your longevity in your career. Become very clear about your strategies to cope with grief, with challenging things. For me. I just started seeing a therapist specifically for this, for dealing with grief in my practice. And the other challenging thing too is is just the rapid change of information in oncology. If you go into oncology, you're going to walk in knowing 2% of it and you're going to do your fellowship and you're going to be like, oh my gosh. there I mean, but it makes you, nobody else can do this job because it's so specialized, right. right? So you can truly get to become this expert that your patients trust. And so the flip side of that is that become really good at what you do and your patients really trust you
0: here here to the vastness of oncology now unfortunately we are near the end of the podcast however as part of the title of the podcast doctors in let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark we like to do this we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by doctors in to rest for lunch now before you leave the innkeeper which is me in this case we like to uh ask you a quote or a piece of advice that I can then frame on my wall. So what would that piece of advice be? It can be a quote or an ideology or a principle that you, I guess, live your life by.
1: To all the pre-medical students and medical students, remember that you're a human first, that your patients are incredibly important, that your career is important, but that first and foremost, you are a human being and you deserve physical and mental health.
0: Beautiful, beautifully said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Vadit, for squeezing us into your busy schedule. I mean, this was very information packed and it was really good.
1: I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. That was awesome.
0: Uh, thank you, Anna. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Dr. Zinn. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Dr. Zinn Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow Dr. Vader on Instagram. See you next time, guys. Bye.